Hello and welcome to Keeping It Real, where we're going to dive into the mysterious world of plastic surgery. My name's Alex, and each episode I'm sitting down with the respected surgeons, Dr. Richard Bloom and Dr. Kim Taylor from Replastic Surgery, and we're going to ask all the hard questions that you want the answers to. Moist and not coming in saying, I want to look like Posh Spice or Pamela Anderson. And so it can be quite life changing for them. And um, we see improvements in their self-esteem, their confidence. If someone's had good work done, then no, I don't, I don't believe it is obvious. If you're having a breast augmentation, you, know, you don't want to be going to the plastic surgeon who does road trauma. Generally speaking, a breast reduction is a fairly straightforward operation, but for many women, there is a lot of anxiousness about the surgery. We have experts Kim and Richard here to talk us through what happens on the table so you know what will happen on the day. All right, well, welcome Kim and Richard. Hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. So this episode is all about the surgery. Um, do you guys want to talk us through what actually goes on on the day? So, I mean, there's the whole fasting thing, which is standard for any operation. And then we meet the patients before the surgery, and that's when we do all of our, our drawing. And in many ways, that's the key to the operation. You need to get all the drawings right. I actually use a laser leveler from Bunnings, which often surprises people. <laughs> but uh, you, you just need to get all of the, the heights and everything exactly right. So, Can you just talk us through, that's a really interesting point. Can you just talk us through what you do? So you need to reposition the nipple. And generally you, you do that, you kind of eyeball it a little bit. So once you want it to be, there's a few different ways that people do it. Some people just do a pure measurement, which doesn't really make sense to me because, you know, everyone, some people measure from the sort of midline, but everyone's got different length torsos. So it has, to, it should really be just below that halfway point of the, what the breast shape is going to be. But however you choose it on one side, you then want it the same on the other side. So generally I'll, f I'll work it out where I want it on one side and which, as I said, is sort of just below the midpoint of the breast. And then I want to translate that onto the other breast. And so then I line it up with the, the laser leveler, which is just a regular <laughs> laser leveler from <laughs> Bunnings and then transfer it onto the other side. Yeah. So then after they've done Usually we will do the drawings first and then they'll meet with the anaesthetist and then go into theatre and, mm -hmm. and go off to sleep. Great. Now, Kim, tell me after they've gone to sleep, what's the process after that? So for me, I inject local anaesthetic into all the areas that I'm going to be operating on. Then we all scrub up and everything's done very sterile patient also has intravenous antibiotics and the anaesthetist gives them some pain relief intravenously as well. And then the surgery starts and all the excess breast skin and breast gland tissue is removed. The nipple is generally kept attached. So sometimes patients see diagrams and pictures of a breast reduction and some people think that nipple is always removed and then put back on. That is done in some cases when the breasts are very, very large. But generally the nipple is kept attached to some breast tissue underneath. 
and then all the excess tissue is removed. We always weigh that tissue just for documentation and then it's always sent off to the lab as well to be tested. That's just routine. Is that tested for? Essentially for breast cancer, but the chance of that is extremely low. But if it is picked up, then I've had one case in the last 10 years. It was very early and she was cured by the surgery, despite her having had, she'd had a mammogram and things like just prior to her surgery. So I guess for that patient, that it may not have been picked up for another couple of years if she hadn't had the surgery and it may have been worse. So it's rare though, so not something to be worried about when you're having this type of surgery. If someone's got strong family history or if they've never had a mammogram and they're over 45, I would always do that as a screening test beforehand. And then back to the surgery, then it's uh, we stop any bleeding and then stitch it up with dissolving it's all dissolving stitches with the aim to make a nice shape as well so my goals are always to give them create a nice curve on the outside of the breast and as well as the cleavage part of, of the breast and then reposition the nipple to the, the the point where we've already marked it either with a laser or with a measuring <laughs> tape um, so how long does the app what the operation actually take richard depending on like the bigger breasts take a little bit longer, but the range would be probably two or two and a half hours to three, three and a half hours, depending on the size. So bigger, bigger breasts, there's more tissue you've got to, you've got to cut through. And so it takes a little bit longer. Is it a difficult, when you compare it to other breast augmentations, for example, is it a difficult surgery? It's quite a different surgery, especially compared to breast augmentation. It's, it's similar to a lift in terms of the, the scars are quite similar one of the anaesthetists that both Richard and I work with describes the part of the operation as a boob explosion because you do actually pull it apart a reasonable amount before reshaping it back to, to making it look like a breast. And commonly, if there's staff in the theatre that have never seen this operation before, they'll actually come to you afterwards and say, oh my goodness, like I really didn't know how you were going to make that work at the end. So it certainly is something that you know, technically you have to know what you're doing and it's all, it's planned. But if you were an outsider looking in, you might think, wow, like that, that have no idea what they're doing. And in terms of patients, do you, do you go into that much depth when you're telling them about it or? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Some of them have actually watched videos uh, online, YouTube videos that are available of all the surgeries that we do. And there's many patients that actually have already watched videos of that, but I show them a before and after. I generally would never show an intro, um, likely to turn someone off. The the boob explosion is probably a scary idea. When you see, as a surgeon, when you're training and you see your first breast reduction, I remember seeing my first and thinking that the surgeon had gone completely crazy and that it was never going to work. So, yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you've got sort of you know, the nipple here and skin flaps there. And before you stitch it all back together, it sort of looks like it'll never look like a breast again. Mm. Um, so, no, you don't tend to show people. Well, that does bring us to how many sur- how many of these surgeries have you both done before? Oh, hundreds. Yeah, many hundreds. Are they rare or are they pretty common? Uh, very common. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it would be one of the most common procedures that, that I do. And yeah, we've done hundreds, thousands, 
over the over the years. We touched on this last episode, but let's talk about incisions. What are the the incisions that you use, and what are the benefits of them? As we talked about last time, there are two broad groups: the the lollipop incision, which is a scar around the areola, and then a, a scar coming straight down to the fold, and then there's the inverted T or anchor type incision, which is the incision that we use. The problem with the lollipop incision is that it doesn't shorten the the vertical length of the breast. So they often end up too bottom heavy and it's often hard to reduce the size of the breast enough and I think to get a good shape. So for that operation to work, you tend to leave the nipple a little bit lower. There's often breast tissue that stays sitting on the chest and everyone today wants the braless cleavage look which I think you can't get with a lollipop incision. So when you're sort of debating the two incisions, it's a question of ideal shape with uh, an additional scar in the fold, which no one sees, or no scar in the fold, but not as good a shape. And for both of us, we fall on the side of go for the best shape and accept the scar that no one in our over 35 years combined practice has ever complained about. And what does the scar actually look like after, let's say, a year after surgery? Is it very noticeable? No, generally not. Um, All scars heal at different rates and different patients. Generally, it's a fine white line once it's completely healed. And that can be at the 12-month mark, 18-month mark. Some patients, six months, the scars are fairly imperceptible. We always show patients photos of other patients um, of what to expect in terms of scarring. So they're, they're very well informed and very accepting of the scars, uh, I believe. As part of our surgery package, we offer all of our patients a laser to their scars as well, um, which is done in our rooms with our dermal therapist. So that's done at two months and three months. Um, we also give them plenty of scar management advice and taping and um, silicon gel. So we do everything that we can proactively mm. um, to make sure that the scars all head along the right lines. And if anyone is having issues with scars, then we see them for as long as need be to make sure that they heal well or perform revisions uh, on the rare occasion where there's a scar that someone's unhappy with. Just in terms of the different approaches, there is one other approach which I'll raise just to totally dismiss, which is the inframammary fold incision. It's just a ridiculous approach. I can't understand why a plastic surgeon would even think to do it. It's essentially like doing a tummy tuck on the breast. So it has to end up with a flat pancake-shaped breast. Was this really common back in the day? No, 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 no. It's kind of like a new thing that not many... I've only known of one surgeon in town that does it, and I've seen one of the results, which I I wasn't overly impressed with. I think it's more common as well in non-plastic surgeons, um, seen as a more simple technique. Um, I've I've seen a number of cases um, of that by a non-plastic surgeon with terrible results. Never narrows the breast um, either. So um, all the things that Richard said, and then it broad, wide terrible shape. Well, that's something that we're definitely interested in. What the listeners will definitely be interested in is how do you know whether you're getting a quality surgeon? So first thing is they should be fellows of the 
Royal Australasian College of Surgeons. So they should all have FRACS as their qualification. And if they're a plastic surgeon, that'll have PLAS after that. And you can jump on, you can see those listed online on the If you go to the ARPRA website, which is the medical board, you can search up any doctor and look at their qualifications. So we will both come in under specialist plastic surgeons as plastic surgeons. The second thing is most plastic surgeons will be members of one or both of our societies. So either the Australian Society of Plastic Surgeons, ASPS, or the Australasian Society of Aesthetic Plastic Surgeons, or ASAPS. The third thing is that your surgeon should have an interest in uh, breast surgery. So not all plastic surgeons do the type of surgery that we do and certainly don't do it as commonly as what we do it. So just because they're, they're a plastic surgeon and they're maybe a member of, of the, one of the societies doesn't then necessarily mean that this is a special area of focus for their practices. So the way you know that is when you're having your consultation, you should get to see lots of before and after photos. So if, if you see a plastic surgeon and they don't show you before and after photos, either they don't have good results uh, or they haven't done many cases, either of which, red flag. Have and then, people come to you before and said that they've been to surgeons previously that just won't show them their work? Staggeringly, yes. And, and the excuse, another red flag, is I can't show you any photos because of privacy reasons. We get consent from all of our patients to show patients and, it, and all of them almost uniformly, particularly for breast work, are happy because there's no identifying features. So no one really knows who it is. And you, you explain to them, well, you know, this, is, this helped you in making your decisions. So in the future, your photos may help someone else in making their decision. And I think the last thing in terms of, you know, choosing your surgeon, which sort of is a bit of an extension of the initial question is that you like the surgeon and their staff, because ultimately they're going to be the people looking after you. So your surgeon's going to be obviously taking care of you in the operative phase. But then afterwards, if you've, if there are any issues or if you've got concerns, you've got to ring, ring the office. So if, it, if, if you go into someone's office and they're short with you or, or not accommodating or not helpful, imagine if after the surgery and you're worried about something and you get that sort of approach. So um, they're so the rapport sort of, is really important. Yeah, really important. And in terms of um, helping people afford the surgery, is there any payment plan options, Richard? Yeah. So I think we mentioned in the first series the regulations didn't change, but they were reinterpreted to make some of the financing options more accessible. So uh, we have partnered with uh, Zip Pay and also Afterpay for financing of various procedures. Restructuring would always attract a Medicare item number. Um, so if you do have insurance, in most policies it should be covered, but you can check. Not everyone would be covered. Some people have, as is topical at the moment, have the lowest level just to avoid the Medicare levy. But because there's an item number, often women will use uh, access their super to fund the procedure because there's there are medical symptoms associated with it. So there are some forms associated with doing that, but it's usually fairly straightforward. So through a combination of those 
those avenues. There are different ways to to access funds for it. It is an operation that is increasingly commonly self-funded, so patients who are not insured. And it's quite sort of amenable to that because it's sort of a short-ish operation. It's, it's generally only one night stay. At a push, if you're medically suitable, it could almost be done as a, a day case procedure. And the chance of having to go back to surgery is very low. If a patient has insurance, which there's less and less patients that do have insurance or that necessarily have insurance that is actually going to cover them for hospital stays, um, then the costs are less. So the health insurance generally covers more so just the hospital costs um, and covers a, a small proportion of the rest of it. Do you recommend that people have private insurance? Um, it's a personal choice. Like, is something that someone has to weigh up the pros and cons of themselves. The costs of, I guess, of someone getting insurance and then having to wait the waiting period um, of 12 months before they could get this type of surgery anyway. I'm sure ultimately if you did it purely on a math point of view, it probably would end up cheaper for them. But often when a patient has come to us for a consultation, they're sort of like, okay, I'm ready to do this when as, as soon as I can. Perhaps for procedures where a patient's looking at multiple stage procedures, which generally would be in a significant weight loss patient where they may require tummy tuck or a body lift and some breast surgery, maybe arms and th- legs as well. Generally for those patients, we'd recommend insurance, but um, for the breast or tummy tuck on its own, then it's really something that a patient has to weigh up their own individual pros and cons for that. And obviously this is different to getting breast implants, for example. So is, do people have any other avenues of reducing the cost um, because it's a medical operation? Increasingly difficult to access it um, any other way. In theory, a breast reduction is available through some public hospitals. My experience with that at just one public hospital in Melbourne is that the waiting time for a consultation, even just to to have a, a, a face-to-face consultation, can be many, many years. And then once they're placed on a waiting list, if they're suitable, um, and the, there's relatively strict criteria in the public system, um, including BMI, um, below a certain limit, then it may be many, many more years before they get their surgery. Um, and then um, the patients then are not able to choose their date of surgery, um, the year of surgery, who does the surgery for them. And there would generally be a registrar or trainee involved in some or all parts of the surgery for that. So, yeah, difficult to access anywhere other than privately. So all surgeries do have risks, Kim. What are they when it comes to a breast reduction? So specific for a breast reduction, is things mainly related to the nipple. So um, things that patients need to be aware of is that because the nipple's being moved, um, it's possible that they may lose sensation. Um, what I find is a lot of these women with very large breasts often have pretty poor sensation in their nipples anyway. Um, and generally they say that it's not really an an issue for them. Um, the other thing to weigh up is whether they've 
had kids or planning on having kids or have completed their family. So um, there may be issues with breastfeeding. Um, again, women with very large breasts can find breastfeeding very difficult anyway. Um, and so, again, that, that's something that they may not find as an issue. Do you find, is, is there a percentage of women that that's a problem with? Um, I usually quote about 30% um, that the, probably about 30% of women can't breastfeed anyway or don't want to. Um, and the surgery probably reduces that ability by about 30%. If a patient needs to have a, a nipple graft technique, so that was what I touched on earlier where the nipple's actually removed and then re-stitched back on as a skin graft, then it's 100% that they're not able to breastfeed and that they'll have pretty limited sensation of their nipples. The scars we've we've talked about uh, extensively that there's no way to do the surgery without scars. And in the short term after the surgery, the, the main risks are with, with any sort of surgery, like bleeding and infection, and those are very very rare. The surgery is performed under general anaesthetic, so there's always a small chance that some of issues from that. But again, we screen our patients from a medical point of view. It's all done in accredited hospitals with specialists, anaesthetists, um, patients are monitored the whole time. And very, very uncommon to have any sort of issues. And have you ever had women come to you who have been to another surgeon for a breast reduction and are not happy with the results? Probably everyone has. The main things probably relate to to shape. And as I was talking about earlier in this uh, episode, that bottom heavy look, which they, they don't like or they haven't removed enough breast tissue. And it, it's an operation where often that can be corrected or improved. The other things which are very uncommon are sort of minor wound healing problems, which generally don't impact on the, the long-term outcome and can be easily managed without going back to surgery. Well, look, thanks for taking us on the journey behind the scenes on the surgery day. In the next episode, we'll be talking about recovery and healing and how to get back to that beach bod that you want. Thanks for joining us, Richard and Kim. Thanks, Alex. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Keeping It Real. To keep up with our next episodes, go and subscribe on Spotify or iTunes or wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you have further questions or want to take the next step, visit www.replasticsurgery.com.au or follow Re on social media. If you want to put any questions to our experts or join the conversation, head on over to our Re Girls Facebook group. 